Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 271 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, January 17th, 2021. It's Martin Luther King weekend. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in the United States. So we hope that everybody is observing, celebrating in in a way that they feel is appropriate. We are the Duke Basketball Report, and we will celebrate every holiday and every week by talking about basketball. So I am here as your host this week. I am Sam Klein. I'm coming to you from my home in Boston. I'm joined as always by my two partners in crime in Washington, D.C. Donald Wine is here. Donald, how are you this holiday weekend? I am doing okay. Uh, Just been kind of relaxing for the weekend. I did watch for the first time. It's taken me a minute. I've caught up with a couple of movies. The Five Bloods, amazing. I I don't know why I waited, but it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. So if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original, I think. Uh, Spike Lee. But it's hey, cr- hey, Donald. Crazy. Donald, what, Donald, welcome to the summer of 2020. Yeah. You're a little hey, behind. There's a lot one. going on. So, <laughs> so I'm catching up. But yeah, it was really good. I yesterday watched Mad Max Fury Road for the first time. So I'm a few years behind. And <laughs> welcome to 2017. My goodness, what a great film. Yeah. That, I, I've, never, uh, I've never taken PCP before, but I imagine that that's what it's like. it was incredible wow what a what an experience jason evans is also here he's our film critic he's in atlanta georgia i love that you guys are like just discovering movies that i reviewed six months well it's not discovered it's just that we finally found the time to watch them (laughs) i i've caught up on more media this year than i ever thought was possible i i have been crazy busy lately i think i've mentioned this before trying to catch up on all the films that, that are awards contenders for this year, because I'm only, I'm like two weeks away from having to vote on uh, some of the critics associations that I'm in. We have our end of year awards. And um, yeah, I've been, I've been furiously watching films the past several days, uh, films that for many people aren't out yet. Um, so uh, yeah, it's been, it's been busy. My, my wife pointed out for some reason, all the awards contenders this year are really depressing movies. You think? <laughs> there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uplifting stuff going on. So like I've been watching films like uh, Minari, which is a, a story of a Korean family um, in uh, Arkansas trying to sort of, you know, make their life work. And it's very depressing at times. Uh, I, I just watched a film called The Mauritanian, which is about the U.S. Um, uh, imprisoning a man in Guantanamo Bay for for decades, and it's kind of depressing. <laughs> we keep on watching these really depressing films, and then you switch so. to the news, and yeah, it, yeah. which is even more and depressing. It, and it continues. <laughs> well, we're going to try not to be depressing here on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. That is not our job. We are trying to bring a bit of levity where we can. So we will, of course, today talk about the game that Duke has upcoming against Pittsburgh. Sorry, the game that Duke might have upcoming against Pittsburgh this week, because who knows? Pitt has only played two games in the last few weeks. Both of them have been against Syracuse. Duke has played recently, although not well. So we will we'll, we'll preview that game. But before we get to that, we have, some, I think, the most important headline news for Duke fans this week is the announcement that came out at the end of the week that Kevin White, Duke's athletic director since 2008, is going to be retiring this summer. He'll have spent 13 years on the job in Durham. Prior to that, of course, he was at Notre Dame. He was brought on to Duke just after, uh, just after Coach Cutcliffe, Coach David Cutcliffe joined the program as the basketball coach. John Danowski had recently been hired as the lacrosse coach following the scandal in that program. So Kevin White was taking over a regime that didn't actually need a lot of coaching changes at the time, but has seen a lot of changes in the time that he's been here. So he was the head of the athletic department through the Duke Forward fundraising campaign in the early 2010s that brought about a number of changes to the athletics campus. He also was one of the leaders in the ACC in bringing about the ACC network. And of course, most recently, he was in charge of hiring Kara Lawson in 2020, following the decision not to renew Joanne McCauley's contract as the women's basketball coach. It's still pretty early in Kara Lawson's tenure, so we can't exactly assess how that's going to work out, although we all feel pretty positively about it going forward, and the the sort of early signs and indicators for that have been good. But I wanted to reflect a little bit on Kevin White's legacy at Duke. He's obviously been on campus for a long time, and though he hasn't made 
that many big coaching hires will have inevitably left a huge mark on the university. So Donald, I'll start with you. Give me your thoughts on Kevin White and talk about any aspect of it, the the coaches, the players, the facilities, the relationship with alumni, anything, the, the ACC network even, that you think is most important. Well, I'll, I'll start with this. I think I think I've joked to you guys about this when we first heard the news. I don't think any AD has ever gone as long at a school that Kevin White has been at Duke where he has not had to replace a football or a basketball coach. Like that is in itself remarkable. The, the, and the fact that for us, considering the carousel of coaches that we had over the years of football, for that to be true during his tenure is amazing. So I, I will start with this. Duke has 17 total team national championships and eight of them have occurred while Kevin White has led the athletic department. Almost half two men's basketball, three men's lacrosse, two women's golf and one women's tennis. We had men's lacrosse and women's soccer make it to the NCAA finals in that time, six athletes and two head coaches, most notably coach K were Olympians while they were at Duke. That is just one aspect of his legacy that he can say we excelled in so many different programs. But the other one that I think is going to be, and, and you hinted at this a little bit, there's obviously a lot we could talk about, the improvement in facilities, football, basketball, baseball, track and field, cross country, lacrosse, soccer, field hockey, fencing, golf. And oh yeah, they formed a Duke softball team. Like these things are all things that we will be able to go to Duke and tangibly see the improvement in the facilities for all of those programs. The fact that Duke baseball is, you know, they improved Jack Coombs stadium, they improved their facilities there and now are playing at Durham Bulls athletic park for most of their games. Those sort of things are going to be uh, just the tangible aspect from Duke's perspective. There's also the ACC's perspective, you know, but for us, when we go back to Durham, we will forever see his legacy and those improvements and facilities the steady success that we've had across a myriad of, of programs and just even creating a program and making it successful in such a short time. I agree with you, Donald, that his biggest accomplishment overall is, is the facilities changes. If you look at the way Wallace Wade stadium looks today and the way Cameron indoor stadium looks today, they both made really impressive. Most for the most part, they're basically just cosmetic changes, but they have really improved the look of the stadiums and also emphasize that they are specific and unique to Duke. I think that the challenge with Wallace Wade Stadium has always been that, look, Duke just doesn't have that many football fans in the triangle that are able to make it to football games and that want to go to football games. So Duke doesn't need a 40,000-seat stadium. It doesn't even really need a 30,000-seat stadium. What it does need is a nice stadium. It needs a stadium that is enticing for fans to want to come to the football games. And I think that short of ripping the whole thing out and starting over and building like a brand new pristine thing, the, the changes that Kevin White's regime made to Wallace Wade Stadium make it a much more enjoyable place to watch a football game on Saturdays. That has been an enormous thing for his legacy. And as you mentioned, all the other facilities, I think, are, are, are a huge testament. The track and field stadium, which looks beautiful. The new, brand new softball stadium on East Campus is, is great and, and by all accounts is an is a excellent place to play. The part of his legacy that I think we are going to, it's not that it's bad. Um, but the thing that I think is is going to eventually look like it falls short is the development of the ACC network and the inability for the ACC to capitalize on some of its really big name programs to drive much bigger revenues for football and basketball television rights. The ACC is, I think, this year is is on the higher end of conferences in you know in ranking uh, how much money they get from their TV deals, but long-term the ACC's TV TV deal is going to get outstripped by at least the big 10, the big 12 and the SEC and likely the PAC 12 when their TV deal comes up. So it's not like it's, Oh, this is Kevin white's fault that the Duke is only going to get $40 million a year from their TV deal instead of 55. But in, in relative rankings, if we need to say, look, here are the most effective ADs, effective commissioners in, in college sports. I think that that's a part of it. And, and really, when it comes to that, I, I agree with you. I think the ACC network distribution has been, you know, not as great, particularly for me living in D.C., which theoretically should be ACC country. I have to stream half the games because they're not in network here. That is where I think 
Duke could have done a better job because Duke of all of these schools is probably the most, the, the school that is most outside its region as far as its alumni base. Most of the alumni base is in North Carolina, but a sizable portion of it, but not most of it. Most of it is all over the country, all over the world. And so you have these issues where people can't watch basketball, they can't watch you know, football, whatever, because it's on the ACC network and the ACC network is, is not available in their area. But I can watch every SEC and Big Ten game I want. The hey, most, hey, hey. the most important place for the places for the ACC network to be available for Duke fans should be New York, Washington D.C., and the San Francisco Bay Area. And th- as far as I could tell, that that wasn't exactly how it was rolled out. Guys, I I don't know that y'all should blame Kevin White for this too much. He was he was instrumental in pushing the ACC to create the ACC network, which was a huge important step. I'm not saying he couldn't have helped with rolling out the network a little bit better, but boy, that's, that would, that would, uh, you know, there's just a lot of other ADs, a lot of people involved with that network there. There's the ACC administration itself. I, I, I don't think y'all should put that on him too much. The fact that he created that network, which has solidified the ACC standing um, from a financial standpoint, uh, I, I think was the really important part of his legacy, the important thing that he had to get. And done. that's why I'm the saying fact that it's not going, the fact that it's not going as great as we would love, as we would like, uh, I, I, I'm not going to lay that at his feet. And that's why I'm saying, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a terrible mark, but I think it's Same. a, a step below the perfection that I think we, we would say if, if all the other, you know, everything else, it seems to have gone well. And by the way, I, I was reading all the commentary from Duke fans and Duke alums and people in the athletic department that were coming out on Twitter and, and on other social media, people they interviewed after uh, this announcement and folks that frankly, that I've talked to on campus. And there is basically universal praise for the way Kevin White has run the department. Everyone in the athletic department seems to think or, or, or says that Kevin White has been a, a great leader for Duke, has been really close with Coach K, with Coach Cutcliffe, with the administration through the, the change in president at Duke. He, he managed that to the extent that the athletic director has to do anything <laughs> with that. He's done a great job. And personally, uh, I, got to, I got to know Kevin White a little bit last year because I was in a class that he was teaching at Fuqua, so, uh, and, and, which was also really enjoyable and, and, and interesting for me. He, had a, he has a great relationship with the business school as well, and, and there's a lot of partnership that goes on between the athletic department and the business school, so that, that I guess I've, I've, I've benefited from. So all of that to say, everybody likes Kevin White. We wish him nothing but the best in retirement. And, and he's going to leave a really important legacy at Duke, someone who, who made a lot of changes to the way the campus looks at, and the way that Duke is perceived in athletics, which I think have been mostly positive. I do want to look ahead at thinking about, all right, he's, Duke is replacing an athletic director for the first time in 13 years. The campus, the athletic department in general, look a lot different than they did all those years ago when Duke replaced Joe Oliva. So I'm going to give it to you, Jason, and ask, one, how do you think Duke is thinking about this change in regime? And two, are there any names that pop up that you think we should be looking out for? Well, the answer, number one, is uh, I don't know. I haven't seen – Duke hasn't really – there are no tea leaves out there. Duke hasn't – begun to send up smoke signals about who they are looking at for this position. And it's worth noting that Kevin White will be there until August. So, so there's quite a bit of time for Duke to, uh, to, to embark on this search. And there's, there is not a lot of immediacy that's needed to it. It's not, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to hear in the next week that, you know, Duke has, has announced anyone or, or, or done anything. Uh, and in fact, you know, with the sort of the, the pace of, of COVID, it's very possible that Duke will sort of wait until the summer when it may be safer and easier to perhaps bring, bring people to campus and have in-person interviews and the such, as opposed to doing things over over Zoom or other, you know, video chat kind of services. So, so with that said, you know, it's going to be a while before we have a really good sense of who Duke is looking at. But of course, there are names that float out there, and there are two that are sort of the most prominent so far. The first one is Mike Craig, who was uh, who was at Duke for many, many, many years. is currently the is currently the athletic director at St. John's. Uh, he, he's someone who has been very closely associated with the Duke program and with Coach K. Um, so, uh, you know, if you want to get someone who Coach K would approve of, uh, Mike Craig is like the, absolutely a, a a logical choice there. Uh, he's been at St. John's for a couple of years now. 
And I mean, it could work. It, it, you know, it, it wouldn't be common for someone to take a job like that and then leave as quickly as Mike Craig would be leaving. But uh, it, it's, it's not crazy. It, 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 you know, he's, he's certainly a possibility. The other one is Nina King, who is uh, currently at Duke, sort of the number two person at the athletic department right now. Um, uh, it, it would, you know, she, she's an African-American woman. And it would be a, a big deal for Duke to, to take someone like that as their athletic director. Um, uh, she, she's young and very, very highly regarded within the profession. This is someone who absolutely looks like she will be an athletic director somewhere at some point in her career. There's little question about that. Uh, and, and I think it could be exciting and interesting if Duke takes her. The, the only caveat I would say about both of these is when, when Duke went out and got White as their athletic director. Uh, Kevin White had not been associated with Duke prior to this. And I think there may be something to be said for not necessarily always looking within the family for the person that you want to lead your program, or not program, programs, your entire department. Um, there may be something to be said for going out and, and looking for someone with a little more of a fresh perspective who can bring some new ideas. So I'm, I'm not at all convinced that Duke is going to stick with someone who is a Dukey. Uh, if they do, Craig or King will probably be it. But, but I, I suspect we're going to hear some other names, and, and I won't be at all surprised if Duke ends up taking someone who's at another program as opposed to taking someone who is inside Duke. And by the way, look at this search for athletic director as something of a preview for the way Duke is going to approach two big coaching searches that are likely to happen in the next few years, that this athletic director is likely to oversee the retirements of both coach Cutcliffe and Mike Krzyzewski. Obviously coach Cutcliffe has been at Duke about as long as they're just a bit longer than Kevin White has. Coach K has been there for 40 years. No one has been working in the Duke athletic department as long as coach K has, or, or if they have, you know, they're, they're so ancient that they're not making these decisions anymore. So Jason, I think it's, it's interesting that you note, of course, Craig and, and King are both people who are, who are probably front runners for this job, given their affiliation with the university and, and with the athletic department, but would not be surprised if Duke goes outside in the same way that when the coach K coaching search comes up and, and finally becomes a real thing, you will hear about Jeff Capel and Johnny Dawkins. And maybe you hear about Mike Bray, depending on his interest in leaving and you'll hear about John Shire, but you will hear about all kinds of other people too. The only thing I would say about that is I think that there is a difference in when you are hiring someone to run a program and maintain a, a culture within that program versus someone where you're talking about, you want them to be an administrator and run a huge department. I mean, it's a huge department, tons of different programs. I, I, I think that you, I, I could certainly see an argument for wanting someone from the outside for AD and wanting someone on the inside, someone who's intimately familiar with the Duke basketball program to maintain some continuity in that program. I think that they are very different kinds of hires. I, I expect Duke will find someone from within the Coach K coaching tree, so to speak, when it comes time um, to, to replace Coach K. So I, I think we're focusing a little too hyper-focused on the two big ones, which I think are are obviously very important. The fact that we will likely have to, the next AD will likely have to think about replacing our football and basketball coaches. But I think they're going, when it comes to AD, they're going to have to look at someone who is someone that across the board can do this because two of our most successful programs in school history may also have to replace their coaches in this next, in these next 10 years. Dan Brooks of women's golf has been there for 36 years. And also uh, Mike, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Donoski for uh, lacrosse has been there forever, has won three national championships is one of the greatest lacrosse coaches that has ever been around. So you have those guys. And then you also have two of the most successful programs going on right now, both soccer coaches, John Kerr and Robbie church have been there forever as well. Since I was in school, these guys all may need to, decide to retire in the next 10 years. And if that's the case, the new AD has to be responsible for not just balancing football and basketball where the money is, but also these other sports where we have been super successful. And I'm not, and that's not counting like, you know, swimming and diving where we've had, you know, and fencing where we've had individual national champions come out of those programs in the last 15 years. So that is a, something that the new AD is probably the most important job 
in college sports right now, because not only do you have to maintain the integrity of the success of Duke's basketball program and, you know, keep the, go, keep the continuity going in football, but all of these other sports where we've been successful may need changes in the next 10 years and they need to be able to balance all of that. By the way, for folks who aren't familiar with Nina King, who Jason brought up, my understanding is that Nina King is, is an associate or, or assistant athletic director in the same way that the associate head coach of a basketball program is somewhat co-running the team and, and running the practices alongside the head coach. Nina King effectively runs some limited number of the individual sports within Duke athletics. And Kevin White has basically ceded some of that to her. So she really is running a, a good chunk of the department already. So it would not surprise me if they, if they picked either her or, or Mike Craig for this job. And I believe Nina King was instrumental in not only bringing Kara Lawson to Duke, but deciding that Kara Lawson was the person to run the Duke women's basketball program. And, and if you're looking for someone to hire the right coaches, which Donald accurately pointed out could be a, not, not just huge, but could be the single most important thing that we need from our athletic director um, uh, over the course of the next 10 years. That speaks well to Nina King because Kara Lawson, everyone agrees, absolute home run hire. So we will look forward to the athletic director search over the next few months. As Jason mentioned, no indications yet from Duke as to how long that's going to take or, or how wide the search is going to be, but expect to hear a lot more about that in the coming months. So we will revisit that you know, whenever, whenever we hear anything about it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to re-preview the Pittsburgh Panthers, who Duke is supposed to face in men's basketball this week. And Jason has a little preview for us for a project that he's working on. So stick around. All right, guys, we're back. And Duke is back on the basketball court this week. They are supposed to play Pitt. We'll see if the game actually happens, but if it does, here is our preview for the game. As of Sunday morning, Sunday late morning, this is what we think is going to happen in this game. So Pittsburgh has played, has also had a few games canceled since their uh, would-be game with Duke a few weeks ago. They've now played Syracuse two days in a row, or two games in a row, not because they planned it that way, but because two games in between their two Syracuse games got canceled. Those somehow, two... somehow we have played one more game than they have and since the time we were supposed to play each other. It's wild. And by the way, we if you want to go back and listen to our pit preview from a few weeks ago, you certainly can. Some very key things for the Panthers have changed since then, and, and we want to get to all of that. But very quickly, in their, in their last two games, they beat Syracuse by a close margin on a comeback victory a few weeks ago, and then this weekend dominated the orange in the second half and, and won by 20 points sort of going away. So I want to talk about those games. I want to talk about what's changed for Jeff Capel and his team since Capel has returned to the sideline and Justin Champagne has, has returned to the starting lineup. So I want to give it to Donald first, Donald, tell me about, about Pitt's recent run against Syracuse in the ACC and what Duke should be looking out for this week. Well, again, go, if you go back to the pit preview, what I talked about was that Jeff Capel's teams always play physical. Uh, they always like to play with that sort of energy that he brought when he was here at Duke. Uh, and this is no exception. The guys that they have on the team are guys that can go. They will, they will scrap for points if they need to. They can score a lot of points, as evidenced yesterday when they just destroyed Syracuse in the second half. They, want, they scored 96 points in that victory. Uh, Champagne is a guy that him coming back really changes the whole focus of this Pitt Panther team. I know you'll talk about him in a minute, but I mean, yesterday he had 24 and 16 and honestly, he probably could have gone for 30, 20. Like that's how good he was yesterday. But really when it comes down, they have gotten a lot better since the start of the year. They opened the season by losing to St. Francis of Pennsylvania by 10. Now, that was a, a terrible loss and one that will be looked back on when you talk about tournament implications. But the only loss that they have besides that is to Louisville back on December 22nd. That would, if you remember, was without Jeff Capel, who was out uh, because of COVID uh, at that point. So 
those sort of things, everything else in between, they, their non-conference schedule wasn't that great. They beat Drexel in Northern Illinois. They did beat Northwestern in the ACC Big Ten Challenge by one point. And then they beat Gardner-Webb uh, when, uh, I think, on a day that we were actually supposed to play them, uh, but then ended up postponing. So those sort of things that, that you see from Pitt, the physical nature of their game, they're not physical in the sense like Illinois or Michigan State was, but they will play on you. They will press. They will play some tough defense. They they get messy on offense sometimes, and that's where they kind of lose the plot a little bit. But when it comes to a Jeff Capel team, you have to expect they're ready to play. You have to expect they're going to bring a lot of energy and a, a, a lot of focus. So those sort of things is what you need to see from, at least from the eye perspective uh, tomorrow night, if we end up, I'm sorry, on Tuesday night, if we end up playing pit. Jason Evans loves diving into the advanced stats. So Jason, what do you have for me on, on the pit Panthers this week? So Pitt comes into this game ranked number 67 in Ken Pomeroy's rankings. Um, as we mentioned, they're three and one in the ACC. And Ken actually projects that they will finish above 500 in the ACC. This is a team with a decent shot at the NCAA tournament. This is almost certainly Capel's best Pitt team that he's had since he's been there. Um, their calling card is their defense. Pitt is the 36th best defensive efficiency team in the country. Um, they're only 97th on offense, but they are very, very good on defense. And they are great at one aspect of defense, which is preventing three-pointers. Their opponents only hit 25.9% of their threes, less than 26% of their threes. That is the seventh best three-point field goal defense in the country. Seventh best in the country. Uh, as a result of being really good at that, it means that um, it helps them to be one of the top 20 teams in the country at effective field goal percentage defense, which, um, you know, that's that's why they're so good on D. <laughs> on offense, um, their calling card is uh, their offensive rebounding. This is a truly outstanding offensive rebounding team. They grab more than 36% of their missed shots. That's the 13th best offensive rebounding rate in the country. And they they need to be good at that because they are not good at shooting. <laughs> they only hit about 30% of their three-pointers. Um, and they have one of the worst block shot percentages uh, in terms of getting their own shots blocked of anyone in college basketball. They're, they're ranked you know, below 300 in uh, getting shots blocked. They get stuffed at the rim uh, a lot. So this pit team, uh, they, they really get by, I think, on hustle and being aggressive. Uh, I, I, you know, you talked about Justin Campani. Uh, that guy averages over 12 rebounds per game, which is, uh, he's only 6'6". It is crazy for a player like that to be getting that many rebounds. And it is because he goes after the ball. And that is the personality of this team. Duke is going to absolutely need to be aggressive and assertive about going after the ball. We, we just, we cannot let them, uh, you know, sort of dictate the boards against us because they will, if you give them a chance, I hope they're, you know, someone like uh, Jamin Brakefield is a guy that I, I see on Duke who, who to me doesn't do a good job of sort of rebounding outside of his area. Um, uh, he's someone who uh, is going to have to really, really work at, at making sure he doesn't let guys get around him to get offensive rebounds. I think having Jalen Johnson back for this game for Duke is going to be huge we, because he is the kind of guy, he's sort of, you know, DJ Stewart. I've talked about DJ Stewart a lot as someone who goes after rebounds, gets rebounds. We've, you know, there've been a number of games where little tiny DJ Stewart leads the team in rebounding. Jalen Johnson is that kind of rebounder. Uh, Justin Champagny is that kind of rebounder as well. Um, and we need Duke guys to be keeping guys like Champagny and, um, uh, and Audis Tony uh, off the boards for Pitt. Uh, it's going to take a team effort. And I think the rebounding battle, you know, may tell the tale of, of who wins this game. Jason, I'm glad you brought up Jalen Johnson's return, not just to the lineup for limited minutes, but expected return to, to mostly full minutes in this game, because his presence is going to be really important for Duke, not only on the boards, but, but also scoring the basketball uh, and, and being able to to move the ball around between Johnson, Matthew Hurt, and, and some of the guards who have been effective for Duke. I'm also glad that we brought up Justin Champagny when we previewed Pitt the first time he was out with an injury for at least a few weeks. He's returned early from that injury and has only played in one game that that second Syracuse game. 
since his return, but man, was he effective in that game? 24 points on 18 shots and also pulled down 16 boards. Jason, you said it. He's, he's averaging a double, double. He's a, he's a beast for Pittsburgh and someone that Duke is going to have to look out for. We also mentioned last time Xavier Johnson, who has really blossomed for them in, in the last few games. He's he's been very impressive. Had 23 points against Syracuse, and Ian Horton chipped in 20 points uh, on five made threes. So someone that Duke might have to to keep an eye on. Pitt hit 35 percent of their three point attempts against Syracuse. It, it's it's a good percentage, not a great percentage, but as you guys mentioned, holding uh, Syracuse to just 15 percent on threes in that last game. That's the thing that's going to be a challenge for Duke. Duke has not been a great three-point shooting team this season. It's been kind of up and down, and, and Pitt is a team that that really holds you back in that regard. So it should be a really interesting contest for the Blue Devils on Tuesday, provided the game is played. And who knows, maybe, maybe they'll decide to, that they had so much fun that they're going to run it back the next night because we have to get two games in against them anyway, right? Well, and the other thing is, in terms of talking about their players, this is not a, a, a super experienced team in terms of having lots of seniors. Um, this pit team, if they stay together and, and I, you know, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say guys make guys are always lured away by the NBA and stuff like that. If this pit team stays together, I think next year, this is a team that will be knocking on the door of the top 25 and uh, you know, in the top tier of the ACC, they could be really, really good next season. And they're trying this season to sort of lay the foundation for that um, and be super competitive uh, you know, maybe reach the top half of the ACC, maybe reach the NCAA tournament as a way of paving the road for what should be a really special season for them in 2021-22. So that's it for Pittsburgh, who Duke is scheduled to face on Tuesday night. We'll hope that that game goes off as scheduled and that we can uh, surprisingly hit the over on our prediction for how many games Duke is going to play in January which Jason had set at three and a half a few weeks ago and which Duke has already played. So, uh, or Duke has already played three games. So this would be uh, an impressive hitting of the over. So we, we look forward to that happening. We want to move on. There's one more topic that we need to cover this week, which is a very special announcement uh, by Jason Evans on a project that he is working on. Jason, I'll let you take it away. This is something that is sort of in conjunction with the podcast, but is definitely your own uh, take on a very special Duke team. Why don't you tell us about it? Thank you so much, Sam. I I'm, I'm super excited to be uh, announcing this to people. I, I told Donald and Sam about this a few months ago. I think I told you guys before I'd even pulled it off, sort of like I was trying to pull it off. And uh, I haven't pulled it off yet. I want to be clear about that, but, but I'm well on my way. And, and this is it. Uh, it was exactly 20 years ago. Um, in fact, we're only days away right now from January 27th, which is the anniversary of the Miracle Minute game where Duke came from 10 points down in the final minute um, against Maryland to stun a really, really good Maryland team. And uh, that was sort of the beginning point of, of a, a truly incredible Duke team, the 2001 team that goes on to win the national title. And last year, as I was sitting around with nothing to do, <laughs> I began thinking a little bit about that team. I actually, I was watching the Miracle Minute game. Uh, it was on, you know, ESPN Classic or the ACC Network. I forget where I was seeing it, but I was, I was watching a little bit of that game. And I was like, oh, wow, that's right. That was almost exactly 20 years ago. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of that game. And then I sort of started thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, that was the team. They, they went on to win the title. Um, and, and I started thinking about the amazing story that that team had for that season. I mean, folks may forget... Carlos Boozer got hurt and everyone assumed that we were toast. I mean, there's sort of a famous meme on the, on the Duke basketball bulletin boards uh, saying it's over because when Carlos Boozer got hurt, every Duke fan thought it was over, that we had no shot anymore. Um, and, and it was a team that even in the final four, they were down 22 points in the first half to Maryland, down 22 points in the final four. And they came back and won the, they actually won the game easily. I mean, it's a, a remarkable, amazing team. And, and, and it came two years after the terrible loss to UConn in the championship game where everyone just assumed we were going to win a title and we didn't. And, it, you know, so 20 years ago, Duke fans were gun shy. I mean, don't forget at that point, Duke had only won titles in 91 and 92. No one knew if we could win without Christian Leitner leading us to the promised land. So anyway, I was thinking about that season and I wondered if I could get every single player on the team to talk to me and do an oral history of what the season was like. I contacted Shane Battier first and I pitched him the idea and he liked it. 
he took it to the entire team. And soon I found myself, uh, you know, answering lots of questions, dealing with lots of skepticism, but getting the entire 2001 team to agree to sit down with me, sit down via Zoom uh, and, and discuss that season. Now, Duke basketball players are trained to be skeptical and cautious. They cherish their image. They cherish the, the reputation of the program. Um, but because I have a history of interviewing Duke players on this podcast, like Shane Battier, Carlos Boozer, Chris Duhon, we've interviewed all of them. Um, I think it convinced them that we could do this in a way that would be fair and professional and honest. And, and so the journey began. It has been a real chore <laughs> getting all the interviews with the team. And the chore is not yet complete. They're still like complete. There's still like three guys that I've got to get stuff from. But uh, I wanted to let the entire Duke community know what we're attempting to do and, and how it's going so far. I've spoken to the vast majority of the team. Um, I've recorded all those interviews and I'm in the process of transcribing them. Uh, and, and at some point later this year, probably in April, probably because it's gonna be very busy up until you know the national championship happens in college basketball. But, but it is my goal that in April, I will release a series of podcasts through, through this channel that will chronicle the, the history, the oral history of that 2001 championship team. Um, you will hear from every single player of that team, um, all kinds of insight, the kind of insight that you, uh, you've probably never gotten about a Duke team in the past. And uh, much of the, the podcast is gonna be reflections about Duke's battles with Maryland. Um, we, we played them four times that year. Each and every one of those games were really significant and really interesting uh, and, and uh, you know, earth shattering. I mean, like if only one of those games was, was incredible, it'd be one thing, but literally all four of the games are truly incredible, really important, legendary games. And I want to give everyone, I'm talking forever. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, on this, this podcast, on this podcast, I promise that the Duke players will be doing the talking, not me. <laughs> but I want to give all of you a taste of what this is going to be like. I mean, the final product will have music and there'll be a lot more editing and stuff, but I want to give you a few snippets to whet your appetite. So here are four little, little pieces. First of all, you're going to hear Shane Battier, and he's going to talk about losing to Florida in 2000. That was the last game that Duke, that Duke lost in the, in the NCAA tournament to Florida in 2000. And how Shane says it, it primed the team and set them up for the run that they had in 2001. After that, you're going to hear senior walk-on and co-captain J.D. Simpson. By the way, everyone on the team tells me that J.D. Simpson was the most talented walk-on like in Duke history. Like this guy could really play, but he just didn't get much of a chance to. Anyway, J.D. is going to tell us what it was like to play at Maryland's Cole Fieldhouse. After that, you're going to hear from Mike Dunleavy. Um, and he's going to talk about his most legendary college moment, which was hitting three three-pointers in a row in the national championship game against Arizona. Um, I'm sure any, all of us remember that. And finally, um, I'm going to let you hear a little bit of Chris Duhon. He's going to talk about the time fellow freshman Reggie Love came into the Duke practice after having a few too many drinks. Yes, drinking right before practice and, and what happened to Reggie as a result of that. So have a listen. These are just a, a portion of the many, many interviews I have with the 2001 Duke basketball. That was a tough game because obviously everyone remembers Chris Carwell, you know, hugging Coach K after the game and with some tears. Uh, but I'll tell you what, we had to go through that. And we understood at that moment, after that, that buzzer sounded, that we're going to win this thing next year. And we there was an edge to us, even after the game, that we – we thought we probably should have beat Florida. That was a really good Florida team that, that lost the national championship that year, obviously. Uh, but we had to go through that, that adversity, uh, and it, it gave us a razor-sharp edge. So when we came back uh, from, this, from that season to start um, the fall of, of 2000, uh, it really was we have a chance to do something really, really special. And... Uh, obviously, Coach K is, is a master at, at laying out goals and, and sort of our trajectory, but he didn't have to because we, we knew in our hearts that we, if, if we stayed healthy and we continued to play hard and play smart, that we had a chance not only to win, win a championship, but be a, be a historical team, which, which I think we, we were. But Cold Fieldhouse was just horrible to play at. It was, it was brutal. It must be like what Cameron is like for opposing players. You walk, they have this shitty fucking locker room that sucks, you know, and this like little tunnel 
it's all on purpose, right? You, you get it. They could have a not little, they could have a nice little locker room. It's no big deal. You know, showers suck. Um, you know, it feels like a, you know, 1975, like prep school locker room or something. I don't know. It's just, it was horrible. Or like some like military lock. I don't know. It's terrible. And you walk out of this little tunnel and you're kind of under the basket and then you're just inundated with fans. Um, and their fans are just insane. They're great fans. Um, really are, uh, you know, for Maryland, they're just, they're, they're, they're rabid. I, I didn't play that great in the NCAA tournament leading up to that point. Um, at some point going into the tournament or one of the first, like, I got a really bad um, stinger in my shoulder. I got hit. And, you know, looking back, like at the time, I would never make an excuse, but looking back on it, it, it affected the strength in my arm. It affected my shooting. And I just, hadn't really shot the ball well and played that great um, leading up, leading up to the championship game. And, you know, like, you know, Chris Collins, who I worked with a lot as an assistant, you know, he's trying to get me going. Everybody's trying to get me going. Like, come on, man. Like we need, we need, we need a big game. We need something from you. And that was, that was every game. That was Missouri. That was UCLA. That was USC. That was Maryland. Like they were waiting for that for five games. It wasn't like, let's get this thing together for the last game. They, they were, they were on me about trying to, trying to play well throughout the tournament. So, um, again, I think I made a shot in the first half, but like, you know, I was just kind of playing my normal, my normal game and, you know, wasn't having a huge impact. And um, it, it was a close game at the point. And I caught a ball that was up above the, this probably NBA three point range. It was kind of in front of our bench. And I was, I was just really looking to get some shots off. Like, I was like, all right, this is my time. Like, I got to make this thing happen. And coach out of the, you know, also at the same time, like I caught the ball and it was a deep three and I knew I was going to shoot it, but he also was like, shoot it. And again, going back to coach and his ability to confidence to guys, like that was his thing. And so, but, but again, I always tell, tell coach when he tells the story, like, don't get me wrong. I was shooting it anyway, but thank you for, encouraging me to shoot it and and it makes for a good story but it was going up and 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 it just and, and I made the shot and I just it just felt good like the shot felt good the moment felt good and then I got a couple other ones right successively after that and it was like boom 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 made three threes and the thing I always look back on like being the perfectionist is shortly thereafter like another possession or two I had another three that I was going to make and um, Richard Jefferson came out and, and hit my arm and absolutely fouled me or else that one was going in. So it should have been four, three. We, uh, we had a no drinking rule uh, for that season. And, uh, you know, can't remember exactly when, but this was kind of early, you know, during the year, you know, before we got to ACC play and things like that. So there was practice and, you know, intense practice, you know, but when we got in the huddle, you know, you can smell the alcohol on Reggie Love. Like, you just smell the alcohol on So, you know, we get in the huddle. So it's basically like, Reggie's here, I'm here, and Shane's here. And, like, we're bringing it in. Like, you could just smell it. And then Shane just, I mean, looked like I was his son. And, like, I just did, like, the most horrible thing ever. I mean, just gives me this death stare. And I kind of knew, already knew what he was insinuating because I can smell it too and I'm like hey man that's not me it's like that's not me and he looked and then he you know Reggie kind of walked off and like you know he kind of had walked by me to kind of do his own little breath check test and then uh I mean and then I just remember like we got in the locker room and he's like come on Reg man like you know, we got to be all in for this, like, thing, like, I understand, you know, it's college, and, you know, think, and which, which is also shame, like, he can be an intense, but he's also not, you know, oblivious to, hey, man, I was a freshman, too, like, you know, I know you guys are in college, like, you know, things like that, right, so right. it wasn't like a scold, it wasn't a scolding, but it, you can tell how important this year was for him, it was like, hey, man, we got to, you know, really, really be locked in. Well, Jason, that was awesome and, and a fun tidbits from the from the show to come and, and a fun preview from you. So we're very much looking forward to you 
uh, finishing up that project and sending it to us because we haven't heard it yet either because you're still working on it. So that, <laughs> that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun when it comes out. And as we said, folks, it's going to be here on the the DBR podcast feed, so you all will have access to it. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of excitement around that. I would. I just want to thank Jason for for dating me uh, because that was 20 years ago. That was my freshman year at Duke University. Uh, obviously, know a lot about that team. That's what it's. I keep telling you guys is my favorite team, uh, championship team of all time. But uh, really, really excited about this. Glad you that you were able to like see something that you were kind of thinking about while watching the Last Dance and re- reviews of this game and going, yes, I can do this too, and actually going through with it. But uh, I did want to ask you, Jason, just real quick. I just want to know who the funniest guy in the team was, because I know who the funniest guy in the th- team was as far as from a funny perspective, but from interviews, who was the funniest guy that you interviewed so far? Uh, so the the two that have stuck out to me the most so far, I think in terms of like funny and funny stories and the such, um, probably Andre Buckner, Dre Buck, everyone on the team calls him Dre Buck, and Casey Sanders. Um, uh, Casey's just, Casey's this really relaxed guy, uh, very casual. And, and, uh, my interview with him was, was just a ton of fun. There's some sort of strange quirky things about Casey's life that I think are really interesting that I, that I hope to, to reveal to everybody. Uh, and Dre Buck was sort of the prankster of the team. Um, he kept everybody on their toes by doing some, oh boy, <laughs> some, some crazy stuff that you'll hear about on the podcast. Um, I will merely say you do not want to get in a prank war with Dre Buck. Andre Buckner will win. Let me let me just leave it at that. If you get in a prank war with him, Andre Buckner will win. And I did want to mention really quick, there was an incredible moment I had that you all will hear when you listen to this. I was talking to Mike Dunleavy about the championship game and, and he started crying. He was reflecting on um, sitting down with his mother for dinner the night before the national title game. And, and, and he even said to me, he said, he didn't know why it was so emotional or why he was crying. He was like, God, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on with me now, but he started crying. And I, I think it's very revealing to understand that these players have, you know, they put in so much work and so much effort. They don't even realize how much it means to them that they had this kind of success. And, uh, and so, you know, when, when I started talking to Mike Dunleavy about it all, he broke down. And, and that's a great moment that you'll hear on this podcast. I can't wait to bring it to everybody. I will say this, Andre Buckner, the only player in Duke history to have a national championship and co-headline a last day of classes concert. That, that, is, that is a factoid I did not have. So there you go. <laughs> that sounds like a story for another time. So we will leave it there. I am sure we will talk about the 2001 team again, leading up to the release of that series of shows. So Jason, we're looking forward to it. We're very excited. I, of course, also remember the 2001 team very fondly. It's basically the first Duke team that I remember watching end to end, like through the whole season, they won the national championship. So that's, that's awesome for me too. So uh, I think, you know, and by the way, I would say to everybody out there, tell you, if you have friends who fondly remember the 2001 team, please tell them to start listening to this podcast. And because I really think you're going to get a tremendous amount from, from this, you know, from these interviews that I'm going to, that I'm going to be rolling out to all of you. And um, I I just want as many people as possible to get to know that team. It was a truly special and truly incredible team. Um, And, and I can't wait for everybody to hear this, but I I want you, if you are someone who, who heard those pieces of sound a moment ago and are excited for this, tell your other Duke fan friends and have them start tuning in because they're going to get more and more and more of it um, as we, you know, as we roll this out. So that's going to do it for us here on episode 271 of the Duke basketball report podcast. We remind you as always to email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments for us that you'd like us to either share or talk about on the show, anything like that. If you are inclined, please leave us ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love five-star reviews. We are inclined to read commentary from five-star reviews on the show if they exist. So feel free to leave those wherever you review podcasts. We'll be back again after Duke's next game, be it against Pittsburgh or heck, whoever it's going to be. We hope that you all have a, a good, safe, happy holiday weekend. And for Donald Wine and Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 271 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, 
take us home. Spam calls that I've been getting lately are from Pepco, which, as Sam knows, is the gas company here in DC. Uh, yep. Sponsor of the Pepco High Energy Three Pointer. Three Pointer. Except for, so they keep calling me asking about me reducing my uh, rate that I owe on my Pepco bill, which is fine, except I don't have a Pepco bill. Oh. At all. And they keep calling too. And I'm like, yo, guys, I don't know who. Like you've, I've never had a Pepco bill from them ever. Like in the 13 years I've lived here, I've never, I've always lived in buildings that either utilities were included in the rent or like that was paid separately by someone else. And I paid other things. That's super bizarre. I got the state of North Carolina really wants me to send back my license plate that I have forfeited. (laughs) (laughs) So it's funny though, right? They keep telling me, they keep telling me they're going to send the collection agency after me, but nothing happened yet so it's, the funny thing is like i have my first ever license plate like when, yeah from michigan and michigan's like we don't care like no one's gonna take yeah. this license plate that's why i'm two one i'm like no one's gonna take that you can- i have my colorado license plate yeah. um my, i don't have my maryland one anymore ohio um, was like yo turn your shit in and i was like i fine here uh dc is the same dc is usually like hey you got to turn it in but for vandy plates they let you keep them oh that's nice. I, you, I have to tell you i get so many damn spam calls from people who are trying to, you know, trick you and cheat you. And they're getting kind of clever. I mean, none of it's going to work on me. I don't, I don't answer the phone anymore from anything that's not someone I know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I hear you. But sometimes look, I, they even hit your cell phone at times. Yeah. And the other day I got one from someone who says, uh, in a thick Indian accent because he's at a call center in India that does nothing but call people all day long. He's like, hey, you can reduce your Comcast bill. Now, I I immediately am like, I don't have Comcast. (laughs) But I I sometimes like to see what they're doing. So so I'm I'm like, okay, how are you going to reduce my Comcast bill? And, And he says, so we have a special program where your bill will only be $120 per month. For, for, for <laughs> yeah, that's TV. an expensive Comcast. Yeah. Expensive bill. Yeah. I, I was like, I was like, that's kind of yeah. He goes for your TV and your internet and your phone Still. and your cell phone. Like they're like everything. That's actually well, if it's all included, that's actually yeah. pretty good. One hundred and twenty. Yeah. So so I'm like, okay. And he goes, he goes, it's sponsored by eBay. You know, we have to have a sponsor for these kind of things, and so you have to get an eBay gift card in order to, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, well, here's the scam. He's like, you have to get an yeah. eBay gift card. That's part of eBay sponsorship of this. They wanted me to go out, buy an eBay gift card for $360 for three months, for the 120 for the three months, buy the eBay gift card, then call them back and read off the numbers of the gift card so that, <laughs> so that I could pay for this. And I'm just like, I'm like, you know, that's actually kind that's of a clever good. scam. That's, I could see you know, that working. Yeah. I guess there, are, there are foolish people who will fall for that. All right. All let's, back. Let, yeah, let's go. Let's, let's, do, a, <laughs> let's do a podcast. Yeah. <laughs>